Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henrik, is the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Carola Dunn to the podcast today. Carola was born and grew up in England. Almost all of her books are set there with forays to Russia, Istanbul, Costa Rica et al., although she's lived in the U.S. for most of her life. The author of 27 Mysteries, the Daisy Dalrymple series set in the 1920s and the Cornish Mysteries set around 1960. She's also written over 32 regencies. She lives in Oregon with her border healer, Callie, with forays to Southern California to see the grandkids. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Julie. I'm looking forward to it. I am too. Um, and let's start where I usually start on this podcast and ask you, when did you say to yourself, I want to write a book? Uh, that was the moment when my now ex-husband decided I really needed to get a serious job instead of a series of part-time, temporary, and so on. Um so I decided the last thing I wanted to do was go out and interview for jobs. Um, so, well, it all starts back a bit. When we first met, he still had a few college classes to do, one of which was history. He's an engineer, so history is not his thing. So I wrote all his essays for him, and I got A's on all of them. And as I've always read a lot, he promptly decided that I ought to be a writer. But he'd never said anything more about it. I just considered that an excuse to stop looking for jobs and sit down and see if I actually could be a writer. So I sat down at the kitchen table with a wadge of paper and a pen. I think it was a pen. I might have started in pencil um, and wrote my first regency. Wow. And and the historical, have you always been a fan of history or, you know, been interested in certain periods that made you want to start with a regency? No. In fact, in history, in school, I dropped history as soon as I can, <laughs> because what we were taught was a list of dates and kings and battles, and I found it extremely boring. Um so I really came to history through fiction, and I loved Georgette Hayer's mm -hmm. regencies. And I reached the point about the same time as all this job business was going on, um, where I'd read all her regencies so many times I knew what was coming on the next page. And I tried a couple that were being written at the time. This was late 70s. And they were so bad, I thought, well, these got published. I cannot do worse. <laughs> so that's how I got into it. And so how long did you write Regencies, Regencies before you started with Mysteries? Um, I have been writing Regencies for about 10 or 12 years. 
and uh, both I, I was at the time writing for two publishers for um, Harlequin and for Walker, the hardcover publisher, no longer wow. around, I think. Um, and both of them stopped publishing Regencies altogether at the, within six months of each other, and so I had to, <laughs> I had to do something. And I'd always enjoyed reading uh, mysteries, so I thought, well, time to branch out. I, I also really kind of wanted to to write science fiction, but I'm really bad at that, so mysteries seemed the way to go. <laughs> and what about mysteries um, interested you? Was it, you know, the puzzle or you write historical? So there's that as well. But, you know, what, what drove you to the mysteries? It's more the personalities and what drives normal people to uh, to murder. I was never very interested in thriller killers or um, multiple personality disorder people. I wanted to explore why perfectly ordinary people nobody would think of as being crooked or violent, why they would one day lash out. And when you went from Regencies to Mysteries, I mean, they both got story arcs and they both got, you know, the same sort of almost dramatic structure and things. Did you have to develop different skills or did you just because, you know, Regencies are very character driven and, and your books are very character driven. So, you know, uh, did you how did you build the craft for writing a mystery? Um, well, as I said, I, I've been I've been reading mysteries for a long time, so I had a a sort of fundamental idea of what was required, and um, it just—I just sat down and wrote. Really, I mean, that's all I've done all my life: sit down and write. Um, I'm not a great planner, though I usually have some idea of where I'm going. Um, I don't write detailed outlines. I don't even do draft after draft. I'm afraid. Um, I once tried it, and it didn't work at all for me. If I don't get it down on paper the way I want to, it to be. I go back and rewrite at that point before wow. I can go any further. Because when I tried writing drafts, because everyone said that was the way to go, um, I found that I still could not go on beyond the immediate bit that I was writing until I was sure I'd got that right, which is not to say that I don't, I didn't go back sometimes and add clues and right. misdirection, that sort of stuff. But the, the fundamental shape and the fundamental basis of so many words was there and was stuck that way. Um, as I say, until I got it right, I couldn't go any further. That's fascinating to me. Uh, you know, uh, I love talking to authors and I love hearing about their different ways of doing things. Um, but this making it right, do you ever get lost in that scene and sort of lose track of where you are? Or do you just read what you wrote and catch up? How does that work for you? If, especially if you're not a plotter, if you're, if you're writing organically, uh, that's a lot to keep in your head. 
Well, it's just the way I've always done it. And I, as I say, I tried it differently and I, I couldn't, couldn't do that. that. That's not to say that I didn't, when I started out both with regencies and with uh, mysteries, I, I started out having to provide some sort of outline to my editors. Right. But um, I got past that after a while and all I had to do was suggest an idea. Um, and, you know, I'd get a contract and then I'd have to figure out what I was going to write. <laughs> um, and in the end, with, um, with the mysteries, my last couple of contracts, both were just numbers, um, daisy numbers 17 and 18 or whatever it was. Um, in fact, they got the numbers wrong one time and I, I had to correct them. I haven't written 17 yet. I can't write 18 now. <laughs> so, um, so, I don't know. It just all worked out in the end. Yeah, no, it's that's amazing. But it's also, you know, I, I think different people have different ways of of doing this, and and that's that's what. And so you said you write. Do you still handwrite? And then transcribe? Oh, no. no, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I wrote four or five longhand. When I wrote the first one, I didn't even have a typewriter. Um, wow. Then. I had a friend was kindly typing it up for me and she was a very busy lady and months passed and she'd only got to chapter 13 where the heroine cries, Charles, and faints. <laughs> um, I made her wait till the book came out before she knew why she'd fainted. But um, <laughs> that's probably the most dramatic scene in any of my regions. <laughs> but anyway, um, also her typewriter was very ancient and all the uppercase letters came out above the line so I figured I would have to retype it anyway and I asked for a typewriter for my birthday and typed it all out so as soon as computers became really usable by ordinary non-tech people um, I wanted a computer and I took a class at the local college to see exactly what I wanted and the my earnings that time went on a computer, which was then thirty five hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, two fifty six k RAM, uh, ten megabyte hard drive, and a floppy floppy drive. Yeah. Five and a quarter floppy drive. <laughs> it was a different world. Different world. Completely <laughs> different world. Yeah, you didn't have Google for research for one thing. It was a matter of what they happened to have in the library. Which um, for writing for writing historicals must have been challenging. I mean, obviously you did it, but I mean it's it's now with Google, there's so much depth of research that you can do. You have to verify it sometimes, but um Yeah. It makes life very much, well, both easier and more difficult because when you had few sources, you had to deal with what you had, whereas now there's so much available that you can get easily lost in research, at least I can, yeah. and go on reading interesting stuff that is of absolutely no use for your book <laughs> and not settle down to writing. So it cuts both ways. But I, I developed some really good sources for some of my books um, for the um, 
Murder on the Flying Scotsman was my answer, obviously, to Murder on the Orient Express. Um, my mother somehow found a man, I don't know how she found him, who had actually worked on the Flying Scotsman in the 30s. Um, wow. The train was from London to Edinburgh and did for, I think, a century or more. Um, and he knew all the answers because he was also a member of the Historical Model Rail Railway Society. Wow. And so he had a whole library of detail at his fingertips. And it was all longhand writing. He didn't email. I was emailing by then, I have to say. Um, but he had all the answers. And he wrote me these endless letters with the colors of the seats and the, the pictures that would have been on the walls in first class and third class, all this stuff was marvellous. And um, I've always, for stuff I really needed to know, managed to find real good sources outside books as well as in books. And so sources can add so much more texture and, and detail that, that the reader connects with. I mean, that's wonderful. Yeah, I've always found that um, as long as you keep it my my rule of thumb so to speak is not more than a paragraph a short paragraph of description at a time for you lighten it with dialogue or action um and preferably description should always be from the point of view of your point of view character um so you don't get the uh, science fiction of those days tended to have these indigestible lumps of explanation <laughs> and above all I wanted to to avoid information dumps so I was always very careful about that. How did you uh, come upon your characters? How did you come upon Daisy and that series? Well the, the one thing about regencies is that you tend to deal with the upper classes. There are a few that um, have characters who don't belong to the polite world, but on the whole, you're dealing with the aristocracy, the county society, the, the upper world. Um, and so I felt I'd done so much research on the subject that um, I was more at home at that point in the upper classes <laughs> than I would have been with um, moving down the line, so to speak. But particularly as I hadn't lived in England for a long time, so I really was split between, between two worlds. I didn't grow up in America, so I didn't feel comfortable writing about characters who had. I just didn't have the depth of knowledge and, mm -hmm. and understanding. Um, and obviously, I didn't grow up in the upper classes in England either. But, you know, when you're making stuff up, so to speak, why not make it up thoroughly? And... Um, so I decided also that um, a sleuth from the upper classes would have access to all classes. And I know some authors have managed to have maids or, or working class people be sleuths and get access to um, the aristocracy, but I don't find it very convincing. So I thought Daisy could talk to absolutely anyone. Um, but I didn't want to make her, as again some authors have done, someone who was 
um, perfectly um, comfortable in her life. She had to be someone who had to go out and do something, um, mm -hmm. not just parties and find a husband. So Daisy um, evolved as she's the daughter of a Viscount, a lord, um, but he died without leaving any provision for her. And she has three choices, really. One is to go and live with her mother, with whom she has a very fraught relationship. Or she can go and live with the distant cousin who inherited her father's title and estates, but she barely knows him, doesn't want to um, impose on him. Or she can try and make her own way. And she has a small income backing her, but she would only be able to live, you know, a bedsitter life on that income. So having tried various things, she decides um, that she'll try writing articles for a magazine. And I figured that could get her into stately homes everywhere because mm -hmm. she has the access as a member of the aristocracy. Um, so she has wide connections and family connections and the background to write articles for a travel magazine about stately homes. And I really wanted to write a stately home mystery. <laughs> Having read dozens of them, mm -hmm. I figured I really knew how to do that. So my first one has Daisy visiting a stately home and finding a murder there, a murder that would otherwise have been overlooked. And what about the 20s interested you? Well, again, that was based in the Regency experience. Um, the Regency is a very interesting period because it's sort of a dividing line between the Georgian, which went on forever and was um, very limiting in many ways for women, and the, the later times when women had more opportunities. Um, plus, they didn't have the, the um, what would, could be called the clothing problem of the Georgian and Victorian women who were all corseted and um, huge hoops so they could <laughs> barely move and all this sort of stuff. Um, Regency was a brief period when clothes were comparatively sensible. And then, of course, the First World War um, brought um, fabric uh, shortages, shortages of everything. So women's clothes, again, became very much more simple and wearable and um, more possible to move in them and to, to get on with life. Plus, you had all the men going off to war, so women had to fill a lot of jobs that had never mm -hmm. been available. The first. Um, female lawyers and um, doctors and so on really got going during that time. So it seemed to me that they had that parallel with the, the Regency in that things were opening out in many ways. Um, travel also became easier um, in the Regency because the roads had been hugely improved and some genius had invented springs for carriages. So you weren't jolting from pothole to pothole all the time in a carriage without springs. And instead of the men going off to London for the social season and the parliament and so on, and very seldom taking their women folk along, um, it, the 
basically the social season began and the women would travel up with their menfolk. They men went to Parliament and the women had their their looking for a husband period. And then in the um because the trains in Victorian times also broadened travel, but um the early years of the last century, um cars came along and mm-hmm. they were um limited to the pretty well off before the war but um after the war suddenly there were lots of cheap cars around and daisy could get her own car <laughs> which was very exciting <laughs> and a little nervous making um like when your teenage son first learns to drive well it's the 20s and daisy making her way and i do think that the 20s everywhere but in england because so many men were lost in world war 1 is a time and women are getting the vote and all of this all of this stuff there's so much change it's a really interesting opportunity for her to make her way it really that, is and uh, i think this is what got cut in almost all the um the books, there is some reminder of the traumas of the First World War and the men who were lost, the men who came back badly injured, the women unable to find a husband because so many were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, a fascinating and constantly changing time, but I didn't really want to go into a lot of the po- politics of it, so it's just sort of how it affected daily life. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a rich opportunity um, for conversations about um, about this adventurous person. Um, but it's also was it? Did you have to do a lot of research in order to get to the twenties? Are you just are you constantly reading about different periods so you you felt settled in? I, you know, I, I, people who write historical romances or mysteries or or fiction in general i'm just amazed because the details and the and the expectation of the readers to get it right <laughs> um yeah. is it seems to me to be that added layer you know on top of just writing a book well there's two ways really to go about it i think um one is to read books about the period um historical information the other is just to read endlessly the books that were published at that time um and from that you get much more of a feeling of how things were how people acted reacted thought believed um and there are if you read fiction written during that period there are a lot of terrible things like um the prejudices and um the way I don't know. I just recently tried to read um, some. I can't remember what it was, but you know, the men used to go out and slaughter thousands of birds every fall. Um, birds that are, are now almost extinct and have to be carefully revived, so to speak, and um, the prejudice against Jews and as I say, I don't like to get too serious, but my third Daisy book, Requiem for a Mezzo, has a Jewish character in it who um, I tried to treat the way he 
the way people reacted to him sympathetically, obviously, showing the sort of general feeling in society about Jews um, without getting too depressing. And I had to make Daisy very broad-minded on such subjects because I couldn't have liked her the way I needed to like her. Mm -hmm. Um, She was really prejudiced. So she's really just the sort of person who takes people as they come and deals with them on that basis, uh, who they are, um, Mm -hmm. which is probably a little starry-eyed, but um, there must have been people like that or things wouldn't have changed. Yeah, yeah. Well, and as you're writing 18 books, you want to be able to like her, (laughs) Um, so that helps as well. 23 books, I had to be able to like her. How people write um, protagonists of their books who are thoroughly unlikable, I don't know because I couldn't live with that in my head. Yeah. How how many books a year do you write? What's your writing schedule like? Well, it's varied. I'm pretty much retired now, but for 40 years... um, there were times when I wrote one book a year, times when I wrote two or somewhere in between. Um, there was a period of three years where I was writing four books a year. Wow. Um, well, they were regencies and half of them were shorter regencies. Um, but I was writing for two different publishers. That was when I was writing for both Walker and Harlequin. Um, it's very, I've had a very, um, until I got to St. Martin's and settled down with just one editor and one um, type of book, um, I've had a very varied career, Re- my regency career in publishing. I mean, my first book was sold to Walker, um, who, and then they immediately, by the time I'd written the second, stopped publishing Regencies. So that was when I started selling to Walker. Mm-hmm. And then Walker published in hardcover and Warner went back to, what I, did I say Warner or Walker for my first publisher? The it first you said Walker, but was it Warner? Yeah. It was Warner. Okay. Um, and then Walker started with my second book in hardcover. And then Warner came back and started doing the paperbacks of the hardcovers. <laughs> and then um, I got divorced and had to produce more income than I got from Walker. And at, just at that time, Harlequin was reanimating their Regency line. And I was lucky enough to meet the senior editor and... Um, so I started writing for them as well. And then, as I said earlier, the both of them stopped publishing Regencies again. Mm. Um, it was just after I'd moved to Oregon and, again, really needed some income. Um, so during that three years before I moved to Oregon, I was writing for both of them. Wow. And fortunately, the Harlequin books were shorter and so quicker to write. Um, I don't think the quality 
suffered. I certainly tried to make them as good as I could, and some of them done really well. Walker stopped doing the Regencies when I was in the middle of a three-book contract. Mm. They published the first one. Um, the second one they said they'd pay me for but wouldn't publish, and I was two-thirds of the way through writing that. So I really wanted to find some someone who would publish that, even though I was now writing mysteries as well. And that was um, my Walker editor had asked for a, a regency with a baby in it because that would seem to be the fashion in romances at the time. So I was left with a heroine who was eight months pregnant and couldn't have her baby until I knew the book was going to sell. (laughs) For two years, she was eight months pregnant, poor woman. (laughs) And finally, Zebra bought the book and she was able to have her baby, or elephant as the case may be. Um, So then I was writing Regencies for Walker and Mysteries for um, St. Martin's for a few years um, before, once again, Warner. No, I don't think Zebra ever did actually stop writing Regencies, but they they moved on to um, the hot romance type of Regency, which I didn't want to write. So, yes, I wrote four books a year for three years. It was a great relief to be able to slow down. Yeah. Well, and I, I, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, your publishing journey, you've had to reinvent yourself a couple of times and, and rethink things and, and but but figure out how to make a living while doing it um, and and to shift things around. Yes, very much so. I think sometimes when we see somebody with a career like yours, we think it was it's just been easy. You get that first contract and you're it's all done but it's it's ebbs and flows absolutely and um i've been lucky enough with with st martin's minotaur to have the same editor throughout and i think a lot of people um that can be a real problem when say their editor um moves to a different house and that house doesn't want to continue a series or um something of that nature and i know more than a couple of people who have been derailed by that Mm -hmm. um which is more or less what happened with my regency except that i was able to recoup but i haven't had that problem at all with walker i've had the same editor throughout bless him and um he's been extremely supportive and when i wanted to start writing the Cornish mysteries, which are a bit different from the, I mean, they're set in a different period and they they have an older protagonist because by then Daisy was still in her 20s and I wasn't. <laughs> so I wanted to try an older um, heroine and so Eleanor Trewin was born. Um, and my, my St. Martin's editor supported that. So I've been extremely lucky, as well as having a lot of chops and changes in the earlier years. And did you find that that 
bringing on this other character um, helped make your right helped refresh you as a writer. You know, gave you new challenges. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, for a start, there's a complete change of period, and the books are set around the time when I left England. So I had to do quite a bit of research on things English too. Um, and it was it was very different dealing with a, an older woman, um, someone who, like me, forgets her keys and can't remember whether she locked the front door when she left and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and a woman with very different experiences from Daisy who had a very easy, well, Eleanor didn't have a difficult growing up, but she had worked all over the world for a, an international charity. And so her world was a very different place from Daisy's world in many ways. And that certainly added interest to um, to the writing process. And that series takes place around 1960? 1970, if I said 1970, yeah. Okay, 1970. I misspoke, but I'm older than Eleanor now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in 1970, I mean, that's 50 years you know, 40 to 50 oh years past. No, well, yeah, sorry. 1970 is 50 years from now, but that's also actually, that's interesting, isn't it? It was um, about the same age, the dif- difference to Daisy's. Like it's a, you know, half century difference and quite the difference right. in, in England and society. Yes, very different. And Daisy was still around, not surprisingly. And in one of the Cornish books, she and her stepdaughter, um, Belinda, have a, a lifeboat named after them because they provided the funds for uh-huh. for purchasing it. So I sort of did a sly on the side link. Oh, that's there. wonderful. That's but, wonderful. Uh, yeah, that was kind of fun. So um yeah, I in this the second the third and fourth of the Cornish mysteries, I get more into some of the historical things that were going on um, at that time period, like the um, the independence of Kenya and um, Uganda and the fight for independence in Zimbabwe and um, characters out of that, that those stories turning up in Cornwall for one reason or another. And so that was another interesting thing to be researching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. What would you, if you were going to offer somebody who's starting out or, or, you know, their writing journey, so writing and publishing, as you know, are two different journeys. Um, if, but if you were going to talk to somebody who's starting out their writing journey, what's the best piece of advice you'd give them? Uh, well, I think something I didn't learn until after they'd written a couple or three or four books, um, which is show, don't tell which I think is hugely important. Um, And as I said about description and and the depth it adds, you want to keep it short Mm -hmm. and keep it point of view of the character, um, not just sit wadges of description in the middle of your story. Um, So I think that is something I learned on the way, which was 
very important and I, I think that is good advice for anyone. But um, if someone asks me for advice, I usually give them Somerset Maugham's saying, which is that there are three rules for writing the novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. <laughs> I love that um, because I, I truly believe that there are no rules because everyone yeah. has different ways of thinking, different ways of writing, how dull it would be if we all, for instance, abandoned all adverbs. Right. Um, right. Step lightly with the adverbs, but they have a place in life or they wouldn't have been invented. <laughs> um, and there's another saying which I can't right now remember, but it was it's very um, apposite and it may come to me before we're finished. As part of your um, writing journey and part of your author journey as well, I mean, you've you've joined Sisters in Crime. You've been a member for a while. What what about community has helped you in your journey? I think knowing other people are going through the same um, the same journey. In fact, um, and knowing that that we're all supportive of each other, uh, that we all want to see everyone succeed. I think mm -hmm. it's very important in a job that's essentially lonely. You sit in your room with your computer and your dog. Um, but communication obviously is important to life in general and knowing that there are people who are on the same wavelength is hugely supportive. Yeah, very supportive. Um, and do, what do you wish that you'd known when you started that you know now? I guess that I would be able to make a living at it. <laughs> it would have been very encouraging if I'd known that right away. But um, that's something you can't know until you get there. Do you think the publishing uh, industry has changed um, in the in more recent years where it's harder for a new author to sort of get their footing and to have a publisher stay with them while they're building a career? Uh, no, I can't say I do. I don't think it's ever been easy. Um, I, I don't really see that it's any different except in details now. Mm -hmm. um, there's always far more people who want to write a book than will ever get one finished. Which reminds right. me of the other thing, I, the other rule, which is glue seat of pants to chair. Yeah. Um, you'll never get a book written until you sit down and write it. Um, yeah. But there are far more people who think they'd like to write a book than ever finish a book. And there are far more people who finish a book who uh, have written unpublishable than who have written publishable. And even of those who write extremely well, uh, there are all sorts of things that can derail you. And that's been true right from the beginning. So I I don't know. I'm not trying, to, obviously, to break into publishing now, but I doubt if there's any more difficulty. It's just different difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, in, it's as you've been showing, um, being nimble in your career and you know, exploring different genres and, and figuring some things out. Have you ever written a standalone? Um, no, 
the nearest I've come to it was, um, well, it was kind of, no, I haven't. I mean, all my regencies except a couple of trilogies are standalones, basically, but there's one that's very different from the others. Um, And when I proposed it, I was thinking standard regency, but my um, editor at the time said that's more like a regency historical um, and I have no idea what the difference was, but if that was what she wanted, for a start, they're longer. Okay. And I only had the vaguest idea of what I was letting myself in for. I just had this idea of a a young English woman in Istanbul, that's where Istanbul comes in, um, <laughs> who, whose mother, who is um, a scandalous woman who ran away from her husband, um dies and she's stranded in Istanbul with no way to get home and um she meets a young man who's fleeing from the Turkish uh, government he's an English agent and so they embark on a journey together and I was thinking in terms of pretty standard regency carrying on from there but I had no real plans I hadn't mapped out the story or anything And it turned into a sort of perils of Pauline. They kept (laughs) falling into the direst situations and then being rescued at the beginning of the next chapter. (laughs) And somehow I got them right through Turkey and Greece and Albania and Italy and the Mediterranean and France um, in one piece, more or less. Um, But it, it was a really fun thing to do and quite different from my other regencies. So I suppose that's the nearest I've come to a, a standalone. <laughs> I, I still marvel that you, you write without, with an idea, but without a map and you keep working on it as you go. I, it's so much to hold in your head and to, to work through as you're going. I mean, it's, it's quite the process. It is quite a process and you always wonder if you're ever going to come out at the other end um with a, a book behind you um <laughs> but as i say it's it's pretty much always worked out for me it's i think maybe it's partly because my books are so character based mm-hmm. um that a lot of the time you're going on if you if you've really visualized and first personalized your character um they take you with them yeah um sometimes you have to rein them in a bit but (laughs) essentially they they know where they're going um and my character's always been very alive to me um so the story is sort of getting them from here to there and one way or another they make it yeah. Well, your readers are all grateful that they do, for sure. Um, thank you for an interesting conversation and for, uh, you know, sharing your your experiences <laughs> with us. It's it's really fascinating. Um, and, you know, I love region. I love that you've written in regencies. You've also written in mystery and you've had an amazing career. Well, I've been lucky a lot of the time and I've worked damn hard so it's come out well for me 
Yeah. Well, I think working very hard is, is the key. <laughs> um, so, you know, luck is opportunity meeting hard work. So, uh, I, I, you know, you were ready when, when the opportunities came. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me, Julie. Oh, what a delight. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.